So let us open our Bibles. Our scripture reading for this afternoon is from 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 to 23, and Matthew 19, verse 13 to 15. We also read from the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 17, and the text for the sermon today is from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27. So we decided to do a catechism sermon in the morning, given that Reverend Dage is preaching this afternoon. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, While the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then the servant said to him, What is this you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now Matthew 19, verses 13 and 15. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 17, you can find on page 569 in your book of praise. Title of the article is Children of Believers Who Die in Infancy. We must judge concerning the will of God from his word, which declares that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace in which they are included with their parents. Therefore, God-fearing parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in their infancy. And then we'll also read from Lord's Day 
27 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 541. Question 72. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and the Spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. 74. Should infants too be baptized? Answer, yes. Infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin, and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. So the sermon I'm going to read today was prepared by Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff, Minister of the Word at Mount Nazareth Free Reformed Church, Western Australia. He has prepared the sermon I'm about to read, and after the sermon, we will sing a response from Psalm 105, verse 1, 2, and 3. Beloved in Christ Jesus, we all know that the covenant is an important thing. On a regular basis, we hear this word, covenant. We hear it in sermons, and in prayers, and in readings from Scripture, when a child is baptized, and even during the Lord's Supper. We know that it's important. But like other scriptural words and concepts, we might be unclear on exactly what it means. Sometimes there's a word that gets repeated so often, we assume we know what it's all about. But if someone asked us to explain it, we would struggle we might ask for a second to Google it. Today, then, we'd like to focus on the covenant. And we do so because we've arrived at Lord's Day 27. Out of the 129 questions and answers in the Catechism, the covenant is probably the most prominent here under the question, should infants be baptized, or should infants too be baptized? In Lord's Day 26, we learned what baptism signifies the washing of our souls with the blood and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now the catechism wants to explain who such a baptism is for. And today we'll look at what the catechism says alongside the Canons of Dort 117, chapter 117, article 17. It's not often that we read from the Canons of Dort, but today we're going to see that these two parts of the Reformed Confessions are closely linked. The title of Article 17 warns us that this is going to be a difficult topic. Children of believers who die in infancy. When we talk about an infant dying or a child passing away, emotions can be stirred up powerfully and painfully. The bond of parents to their children is among the most close and tender of relationships. So we know that this doctrine touches those among us who have lost children, whether it was recently or many years ago. 
But be clear, it affects us all. This doctrine isn't just for those who have gone through the heartache of losing a child. It is important to every one of God's people, very old and very young, those with children and those without children, those who are married and single and widowed. For the key issue is the covenant that God has with us. When God promises something, does he mean it? Can we know that God holds to what he has said? We study the teaching of Scripture as summarized in Lord's Day 27 and the Canons of Dort 117. Under this, children belong to God's covenant and congregation. One, a particular denial of this truth, the scriptural basis for this truth, and the rich comfort in this truth. So a particular denial of this truth. Later on this evening, or maybe this week sometime, you should read through the first chapter of the Canons of Dort. And when you do, see if you're surprised when you arrive at Article 17. In a way, this article seems to come up out of nowhere. Up to this point, the Canons have been talking about all sorts of matters related to the doctrine of election. It has explained how mankind should be condemned by God for its sin, but how God has made salvation possible for sinners, and how this gospel of redemption is received with faith by some and with unbelief by others. The canons then give that long definition of election in Article 7. In short, election means that God has eternally chosen out of his grace a certain number of specific individuals, persons, to be saved through Jesus Christ. Then right near the end of this first chapter comes Article 17. The canons use only two sentences to declare the Reformed teaching on this topic. As sentence number two puts it, God-fearing parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in their infancy. Surprising, isn't it? Where'd this come from? Up to this point in the canons of Dort, infants and children haven't been mentioned even once. Other specific moments of human life haven't really been described. On the contrary, this chapter has spoken almost entirely in broad and sweeping terms, talking about big things like humanity, salvation, and judgment, election, and reprobation. It's looked at all this testimony or all this territory from a bird's eye view until suddenly we zoom in and we're brought down to earth. With this article, we are brought down to ponder a sad situation, one that has been very, very real for many Christian parents when children die. First, let's first take a moment to see the statement in its proper setting. It's in the Canons of Dort, which we said is all about the doctrine of election. Election was one of the many scriptural teachings that were rediscovered in the period of the Reformation. This was a time going back to the Bible to relearn God's truth, a time of blowing the dust off from scriptural treasure that had long been neglected. The Bible teaches election, so it was explained in the Reformed creeds from those first decades of the Reformation. For instance, you can find it mentioned in Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism and outlined in Article 16 of the Belgic Confession. To be sure, these statements were fairly brief 
and to the point. At the time, there was no need to emphasize this particular doctrine. It was all pretty straightforward. But then, some 60 or 70 years later, there were troubles brewing in the Reformed churches of the Netherlands. It was the early 17th century, and some people were getting uncomfortable with the whole idea of election. It just didn't seem right that God would choose some people and not others to be saved. And that this was based only on his free and sovereign will. For years, Jacob Arminius, a professor of theology, undermined this doctrine when, he, when teaching his students. He said that God elected, yes, but only those whom he knew would later come to faith. He chose people that already had something going for them. Different views of election were quietly developing until it all came into the open at a meeting of some 40 Dutch ministers, the original Armenians, you could say. They got together to put their objections down on paper. And at this meeting, the issue at hand was raised for the first time. These ministers denied the Reformed teaching of election, and, for, and one reason was that it meant that God might condemn some of the children of believers. For didn't Reformed people say that children are totally sinful, even from the time of conception and birth? Yes. And didn't, Reform, didn't the Reformed also say that not everyone is elect? Yes. That then follows that even some of those covenant children are bound for everlasting fire. In this way, the Armenians were accusing the Reformed of being very harsh towards children. They were trying to sway public opinion against them. So they portrayed the Reformed side as nasty and cruel, like they were ready to put children on a bus to hell. Yes, it was an emotional argument, and it was an argument that touched on a very sensitive topic. For there is great sorrow for parents in this situation when a child dies still very young. And at the time the canons of Dort were written, this was a sorrow far more parents had to endure than today. For example, in 17th century France, almost 20% of the children died between the ages of one and five. Or consider a typical snapshot from the time. According to church records in England, there was a woman married in 1634 who received six children. Two of her children died in infancy, another when aged four, another at aged eight. Only two of her six children lived to reach adulthood. Such tragic family histories were nothing uncommon. This didn't even change a lot until, until recent times. Even in Western nations in the early 20th century, one and every 10 children die in the first year of life. In an age where almost every parent knew the grief of losing a child, this argument was sure to carry some weight. Sure, the Armenians were wrong about other things, but were they right about children? More merciful than the Reformed people who said that even children of believers could be condemned. So the first reason to include this topic was to clear up the doubt being sown in the hearts by grieving parents. The Reformed reacted to this uncertainty not just in Article 17, but also in the conclusion of the canons. You can find it after the very last chapter on pages 587, 588 of the Book of Praise. There's a summary 
of the various charges that the Armenians were making against the Reformed. Bottom of the main paragraph on page 587, some have acted very improperly against all truth, fairness, and love in wishing to persuade the public of the following. And then, as the last point on the next page, many innocent children of believers are torn from their mother's breasts and tyrannically thrown into hell so that neither the blood of Christ nor their baptism nor the prayers of the church at their baptism can be of any help to them. Such a teaching we go on to read, the Reformed churches not only do not confess, but even detest wholeheartedly. That's on page 588. That was one reason for this article. It was time to set the record straight on what the Bible says about the salvation of covenant children. There was a second reason, too, for including Article 17. They needed to correct the Armenian view, for their view was that all children are saved. Yes, all of them, regardless of whether they are in the covenant. The Armenians taught that there's no election, no reprobation when it comes to children, which for them is a logical conclusion. The Armenians said that God's election of a person is based on foreseen faith and his reprobation of foreseen unbelief. In other words, it's based on something in the person. Since infants can neither believe nor disbelieve, election just isn't an issue. All the children are saved. This meant the Reformed churches had to make a statement. It would be a pastoral statement for comforting those many grieving parents, but it'd also be a confession statement for summarizing the clear teaching of Scripture. The scriptural basis for this truth. So what does the Bible say about children? That's really the heart of the matter. What is a child's position before the Lord? And a first thing that Scripture affirms is that, yes, all children are conceived and born in sin. Think of Romans 5, where God says every human being, no matter age or race or gender, shares in the guilt of Adam's transgression. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Verse 18. This was one problem with the Armenian view. They denied that original sin affected us so deeply and powerfully. They also said that God judges us only for those sins that we consciously commit. Like when we blaspheme God's name in an argument. Or when we steal money out of dad's wallet. Since infant children don't commit actual sin, the reasoning goes. They won't be condemned. You can understand why the Armenians were trying to get every child into heaven. It's what anyone would want. But to do it, they had to ignore what the Bible said about the extent of sin and the seriousness of sin. From that first day in our mother's womb, each of us is guilty and deserves condemnation. Scripture is clear on that. And the Armenians were getting something else wrong too. They were missing a central pillar in the house of salvation, for they were missing the covenant. Scripture says that all people, children included, have fallen short of the glory of God. But it also says that the children of believers are distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Question answer 74. There is a difference. For the children of believers, we confess 
belong to God's covenant and congregation. That's a vital point. Out of God's grace, we are included with him in a living relationship, a fellowship, a communion of love. And this relationship doesn't begin at a certain age or maybe once we profess our faith. No, infants and children are members of Christ's congregation all along, just as much as believing adults are. Think of what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples. Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, verse 14. The kingdom of heaven isn't closed to the little ones. There's no sign outside the door saying, you must be this tall to enter. No, the kingdom is also theirs. Notice how Matthew 19, Christ calls these little children over, invites them to himself, and places his hands on them. He blesses and prays for them. Our Savior ministers to them because these children are the very ones given a place in God's kingdom. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, that the children of believers are holy or sanctified in Christ. Even if just one parent is a believer, his or her children are a special possession to the Lord. That's the scriptural truth being echoed in Lord's Day 27 and also Article 17. We must judge concerning the will of God from his word, which declares that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace in which they are included with their parents. There's nothing inherent about the children of believer that sets them apart from God's grace. They might be really cute. For a time, they might even be innocent in one sense of the word. But it's not by nature that they have that they have that beautiful position it's only because of the covenant of grace god enters a living relationship with with believers and their children and he shows that by extending his promises through christ's blood the redemption from sin and the holy spirit are promised to them no less than adults question answer 74 as the father son and holy spirit he promises that he will be our God, and we will be his people. If the Father has claimed you from the beginning of your life, you're holy. If Christ has reached out to you and blesses you, you are holy. If the Spirit promises to dwell in you, like he lived in the glorious temple long ago, then you are set apart for him. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, you are his really and truly his. Heavenly promises are entrusted to you the very moment your life began. There's an obligation too. You are called to love God, to trust God, to obey God in all things. As a child grows and matures, he grows into that obligation. This is why parents get busy instructing children. And it's why we need to stay, in const- stay constant in praying for our children. And then, by God's grace, children begin accepting these promises as their own. Sometimes children who are only very young can express a simple faith in the Lord. They pray to God with great determination. They have this unquestioning confidence in his word, where because God said it, it must be true. They join in worship with enthusiasm. 
You can hear their singing voices above everyone else's. As scripture says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Psalm 8 verse 2. Christ also spoke of these little ones who believe in me. Matthew 18 verse 6. God, the Holy Spirit, can work in any heart at any age. So what about that difficult situation mentioned in Article 17? What if God takes a child before he has accepted the Lord's promise? What if he takes a child before she's been able to express a love for God? What becomes of him or her? Such a child is saved through God's promise. The child belongs to the congregation of Christ. God's covenant promise still stands. God's claim on that child remains in force. Again, it is not because of the good character of the child nor the faithful character of the parents. It's because of God's promise. To that child, God has made a vow. God has given his word. He has said, I will be your God. To you, I will be a father. And beloved, what is more sure than a word from God? What is more dependable than something he has said? The grass withers and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God is ever faithful to his promise. See how this truth brought comfort to King David when his child passed away. This, this was the child born to him and Bathsheba. As the child lay ill, David spent seven days of fasting and weeping. But then when the child does die, David undergoes a cha- change. He washes, changes his clothes, eats again, goes to God's house for worship. It's like a heavy weight has been lifted, and he's ready to start anew. To David's servants, this was a puzzle. And they asked the king about it. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, David says. For who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? 2 Samuel 12, verses 22 to 23. David knew this was God's good will. He continued to grieve this most painful of losses. You don't just shake off this kind of sadness in a moment. Yet in sorrow, David clings to that precious hope. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I shall go to him. Can you hear David's hope, a hope beyond the grave? As he mourns the loss of his weak old son, he's comforted. Even on that dark day, he knows where his son is. God has taken him home. As a believer, David knows where he is going to. I will go to him. I too will go to that place of glory in the presence of God. David didn't doubt his child's salvation because he didn't doubt God's promise. The same comfort is offered to all Christian parents who grieve. For there can be miscarriages, there can be childhood illnesses and accidents and death. Yet in the words of our confession, parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children. Here's the answer to sorrow and sadness. The answer is the unshakable firmness of God's word. His word to his people is true. We know whom we have believed and we are confident in him. The rich comfort of this truth. Scripture speaks to parents who have lost young children. The children of believers are holy. They are part of God's covenant and congregation. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In the radiant warmth of God's promises, 
The doubt and sorrow of parents can melt away. This truth is for grieving parents. But let's extend that and think of the great value that it has for all of us. It's the truth that God's word is sure. For instance, it speaks to those many parents who are busy right now with the task of raising covenant children. This is not an easy job. Just when you thought you almost had it figured out, there's another stage of life, a new attitude, and a new challenge. We are faced with the frailties and the weaknesses of our children. And as parents, we are faced with our own weaknesses and failings. There's so much we could do better. Where we could be more consistent, more godly in our words, more devoted. But be encouraged as you seek to shape your children according to the Lord's word. Be encouraged to persevere in this difficult task. Because you can know this is something important to God. He's got a deep interest in your task. For he delights in the praise of his covenant children, young and old. He wants to be honored and confessed as God by you and by them. And that means he's going to help you in this work. It means you can depend on him for strength and for direction. If you feel like your parish patience is wearing thin, ask him to restore it, and he will. If you feel like you're at a loss, ask him for wisdom, and he will give it. Count on his help in what you're doing, for his word is sure. The same truth is a comfort when covenant children leave the right path and they choose a life of sin. Even then, God is faithful and his promise is dependable. I'm not saying that none will ever fall away. They do. And it brings great heartache and sadness. But there are none who fall beyond his reach and none who wander so far that they're past his view. The good shepherd sees all his sheep and he knows each of them by name. God has given them, given his word to them and if they accept it, his word will yet save them in their life too. His word can yet have such a great power. Beloved, let's apply this rich truth to each one of us for it's what we can give confidence to everyone, God's unfailing promises. If God has spoken something, count on it. He has promised to provide for you in body and in soul. He has promised you a way out of the devil's temptation. He won't leave you in the devil's clutches. Not if you ask God for help. God has promised you comfort in your trouble and strength in your trial. He has promised you his Holy Spirit. He has promised that his grace is sufficient. He has promised that all things work for the good of those who love him. He promised everlasting glory. These are the promises of God, and believers ought not to doubt their truth and reality. They are all true in Christ Jesus. So hold on to God's words in faith. Learn to plead on his promises in your prayers. Build your life upon the Lord's word as upon a firm foundation. Amen.